Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. This is God's holy, inspired word for us today. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or... Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that continually teaches us and trains us. Lord, thank you for your word that reveals who you are. God, I pray that today you would reveal your son to us. That you would reveal who you are as the king that we serve. Who you are as the one that we follow. I pray that we would see you as greater than the temple. That we would see that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. God, and I pray that we might find rest in you. Lord, would you strengthen me as I speak today? Would you fill me with your spirit to be able to share your words? Lord, let all words that are not from you just fall aside. But Lord, I pray for each and every person here that you would would fill them with your spirit as well to, to enable all who are here to hear from you, to receive from you, Lord, and give us power to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, counterfeiting is big business in the world today. It's said that like $7.7 billion a year is conducted in counterfeit business. And and some of it is seemingly benign. Some of it's the kind of counterfeiting. It's not really counterfeiting. It's just copying. Although, um, according to Homeland Security, you know, piracy is not a victimless crime. I I never really understand that. But I, I believe those warning signs on my DVDs when I see that you're not supposed to copy them and I'm supposed to copy songs and that kind of like. But, but there's more serious counterfeiting than that that goes on. Not just counterfeiting of money, but there's counterfeiting of, 
of military supplies and equipment. There is counterfeiting of medical supplies and of medicine. Um, There's counterfeiting of things that can be dangerous to basic health and safety that really aren't benign. According to a a report released by the Senate Armed Services Committee, it found that there was 1,800 instances or 1,800 jobs where in just two years alone, 2009-2010, counterfeit parts have been used on military aircraft. That doesn't sound like much of a big deal until you realize that the counterfeit parts don't have the same tensile strength and don't have the same reliability. And then it has been tracked back to about a million individual parts and they're responsible for countless crashes. Now, that's not widely known, but that can become a security, a safety issue. It it was also discovered in 2008 by the World Health Organization that um, some manufacturers of milk and, and then infant formula as a result, have been watering down their milk, counterfeiting the milk, uh, counterfeiting water as milk, passing it off, putting various additives in it to full government tests for protein. So they put something called melamine in milk and, and, and then it turned out into in the baby food. And there was 50,000 babies hospitalized. 50,000 babies hospitalized. Counterfeiting is a, is a real and a serious problem. According to the NIH, 660,000 people each year die from counterfeit malaria and tuberculosis drugs. Drugs that are meant to do good actually end up killing 660,000 because they are counterfeit. Trusting in something counterfeit can have dire consequences. Whether you know you're trusting in something counterfeit or not is really important. It's important to know whether you're trusting in the genuine article or whether you're trusting in someone else. And, and really, that's what this passage is about. It's about whether we're trusting or hoping in something that's counterfeit, a, a religion externalism, a, a religion that is about works, about trying to earn God's favor through keeping the Sabbath or keeping the law. Or, or are, we try, are we trusting in the true temple? Are we trusting in the true Sabbath? And we're going to see that in this passage today that that counterfeiting can have serious consequences. The Pharisees, they had subtly stopped trusting in God as their salvation. And it, it didn't seem like a big deal because didn't God, after all, command them to observe the Sabbath? But they had subtly stopped trusting in the God, the Lord of the Sabbath, and enjoying the Sabbath as a privilege and something that they did in response to God's salvation and his deliverance. And instead, they thought that somehow keeping the Sabbath would keep their salvation. They trusted in the counterfeit religion. They were looking for the Messiah to give them this kind of earthly deliverance, earthly restoration. They, they were looking for them to bring, him, bring them into the land of promise on this earth. And they, they didn't see that they were, they were hoping in a counterfeit hope. They were looking for an earthly kingdom ultimately and finally. You know, how, how does this apply to us today? It's, it's, not, it's not a big reach. You see, often we are tempted to look to counterfeit things for our hope. Often we are tempted to look to counterfeit sources for our rest and that's what these verses really reveal let me ask you in in the this wonderful presidential election season where the very values and the beliefs that we hold most dear and the land that we enjoy living in are being challenged and shaken the question for us is where are we looking for hope is our hope a real hope or are we looking to counterfeit hope 
I think these verses apply to us. You know, the fundamental issues that it addresses are very relevant to the the real challenges that we face today. It it raises critical questions of of what altar do we worship or or at or or who do we worship? Do we worship in a physical place or a land? Do we worship our country? Is that the goal for us as Christians? Is that where we look for peace? Do we worship earthly leaders? Do we look to people to deliver us? Do we worship a person or a party or a system? Do we place our hopes and dreams in them? If so, we're placing our hopes and our dreams in counterfeit hope. Where do you look for your place of rest? Where are you looking to for your place of rest? Are you looking for your place of rest in what this world can bring us? Or are we looking to the one who is our true rest? That's the questions that this passage addresses. And it really gets to our hearts if you begin to see, wait a minute, this actually is not just about them, the Pharisees. This is about us as well. It's, we have the same issues. We have the same things, the same concerns that we face, the same temptations to bow to false gods. We have the same temptations that the Israelites had when they were in the land of captivity. You know, who are we looking for to restore and heal us? We're looking to God first and foremost and trusting him. Are we we seeking to trust him like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and and saying we're not going to bow to the idols of this world, or are we, are we bowing to false gods? You see, the, Scripture always addresses our hearts, and when Scripture talks about the temple and the Sabbath rest, it's actually addressing the very issues that we deal with on a daily basis, the issues of worship and the issues of hope and rest. And, and so Jesus here, he's, he's addressing our hearts and showing us something really important in the first six verses at least. He's showing us that he is our temple. He's our temple. That's, that's what he's doing. That's what he's revealing to us in, these, in this passage. Luke is giving us a window or a picture into the fact that Jesus is our true temple. That, that the, the physical place that they went to was, was not ultimately their place of hope. We see in here there's this vignette. Jesus is walking along the road with his disciples. Or actually, he's walking through the fields with his disciples. And he's walking through the fields, and it's kind of almost a humorous picture. His disciples are doing what you find them doing a lot. They're eating. Um, I can relate to the disciples. We like to eat as a church, and we're going to do that again in a couple weeks. In October here is a potluck and a little plug in there. Invite people to do that. But, so they're, they're going along. They're doing what normal humans do when they get hungry. They're snacking. They're not, they're not farmers. They're not doing anything that was wrong. They're, they're going to the fields. And, it, and, and Luke kind of describes some more detail and says they were, they were rubbing the little grains, the little um, kernels of either wheat or barley. They're rubbing them between their hands. And they would get rid of the chaff and they would eat the kernels. And, and they were doing that because they were hungry. They weren't stealing. There was a provision in the law that actually allowed for that. That allowed you know, a one to satisfy their own hunger. Not to take a basket or take it away or, or to give it to somebody else. But to take it for their own good, for their own consumption. There was a, a generosity that was provided for in the law. And they were hungry and they were having a snack. And so you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? If the law permitted this, they were just hungry. They were having a snack that was permissible in the law. 
But the Pharisees objected to what they were doing because the disciples were doing it on the Sabbath day. You see, the, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week and it was a day that God had commanded to Moses to, for the people of Israel to set it aside as holy to honor him. And it was meant to serve, ideally, to point them back to God. It was meant to serve as a reminder that, that God worked for six days and that on the seventh day he rested, that God was their creator and that their rest is actually found in him. And they were to observe this, this rest as worship of God. And they were to, to rest in his work and the fact that God rested from creation. And then they were to, they were to see that because he rested, they could have rest. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the reality, really, that, that all of mankind's work ultimately rests in God's work. That's what they were meant to see in the Sabbath commandment. To set aside a day not to work. A day to, to rest, to recuperate, to, to be restored. If you ever had a few weeks, you have the kind of job where you, you work shift work when you've, or you've had to work doubles or whatever and, and you've had to work for a couple weeks in a row without break. You, you know that our bodies even need rest. Our body's weakness is meant to point us to, to look to God for rest and restoration and refreshment. Siri's asking, what was that again? Um, that's great. In, instead of the Pharisees seeing this as being an act of mercy in God giving the Sabbath, though, the Pharisees were looking to the Sabbath to justify them before God. Instead of receiving the Sabbath as a gift of God's mercy and a sign and evidence of his salvation and the fact that, that he had delivered them and now it was a picture of their deliverance that they were to observe, instead of observing it that way, they turned the Sabbath into something wrong. They turned it into a means to achieve God's kindness, to earn God's favor by keeping the minutia of details. And they created these strict interpretations of the law and they held it higher than they did the intent of God in the law. It was for the good of God people, for good of God's people, but now really the people were, were serving the law slavishly, as if the law gave them confidence in God. In an odd way, then, for some Pharisees, the Sabbath had become a work of its own, and they trusted in the stricted, strictest observance of it for holiness. And so they were attacking the disciples. They were, they were saying that they were violating the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, this wasn't teaching that was in the Scripture. Even though they were still keeping the spirit and intent of the Sabbath commandment, they, they said that the, the disciples were violating the law. And so Jesus, in response, he corrects them. And he uses an argument, really, from the, the greater to the lesser. And he gives them as an example. If you look down your Bibles, it's in, it's in verses um, 3 and 4. Jesus gives them an example of David coming into the tabernacle when he was hungry and he was on the run and he was famished and he needed food for him and his men. And so he comes in to the tabernacle and he asks the priest, can I have some of the bread that's set aside for the presence of God that is actually illegal? That really is written in God's law for him to have. He was not allowed to have that. And yet the priest saw that there was a greater principle of mercy that trumped the law. And so he says, don't you understand that David, when he came in, that he was given 
the bread of the presence of God and he was allowed to eat what only the priests could eat because there's a greater principle that, that God is a God of mercy and he desires that we show mercy. And he uses David's disobedience to the law as a positive example of mercy. And, and these disciples, they're just eating grain like the law allowed. And so if David was shown mercy, if, if he was allowed to break the clear ceremonial laws out of mercy, then surely his disciples deserve the small mercy of being able to eat grain, which was legal to eat, because they were hungry. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's, he's hinted probably at the fact, too, that he is greater than David, that he is supplying from his creation for his people. But then Jesus continues to show the inconsistency of their accusation against the disciples because even the priests can't keep the Sabbath. Look down in verse 5 in your Bibles. He's effectively saying in verse 5, he's saying, look, even the priests can't keep the Sabbath. If you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, then tell me this. Don't the priests work on the Sabbath? Isn't that their job? Doesn't Scripture actually command them to work on the Sabbath? So they're really violating the Sabbath law, and yet they're held guiltless. They're not seen as Sabbath-breaking. And then he draws this parallel between his disciples eating, as the, really as they were serving and following him on the Sabbath. And I think we're meant to see a parallel of, of the disciples following Jesus and serving him on the Sabbath and the priests who were serving God on the Sabbath And so in verse 6, Jesus says something that really would have been earth-shattering for them. And it would have had a a mind-blowing effect if they actually listened to it, if they believed it. Jesus looked down your Bibles in verse 6. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Other other versions say someone greater than the temple is here. And, And the word order puts it in such a way in the original language that it's um, the temple is here, I am. It, it, it points to, to Jesus by inference at least. And why that was significant, think about it for a minute. The temple was the place where God's people came to worship on the Sabbath. It was the place where they experienced communion with God. The temple was the place where people would come to meet God. The temple was a place where he would receive from his presence, where he'd receive mercy and grace. The temple was a place to receive forgiveness, where atonement for sins was made at the temple. And now Jesus is telling them that someone greater than the temple is here. Do you catch that? Are you getting the implications for yourself? The reason that he is greater than the temple is that he himself is the very presence of God. He's greater than the temple because he's the incarnation of the person of God. And so instead of drawing near to God through a temple, we can draw near to God through him. What an astounding mercy. What astounding grace. What unprecedented access. Instead of worshiping God through the means of a building, people worship God through Jesus. The temple was a place where 
God's blessings were mediated to God's people. Now Jesus is saying, someone greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Why? I am here to mediate even greater blessings to you. You've been trusting in something that was always meant to point to me. And now really you're trusting in a counterfeit. I want you to see that I have come to replace the temple. I've come to fulfill the temple. He's the greater temple because he himself is the place of sacrifice. And through the sacrifice of himself, once and for all time, we're made acceptable before God. That's what happens in the temple is atonement is made. Peace with God is is bought. And Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. And so the earthly temple and sacrifices are no longer needed the question for us now, this is, this is relevant for us as well, is do we draw near to God through Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you find satisfaction in him? Do you find atonement in Christ alone? Or are you still looking to counterfeit atonement and trying to earn God's favor by all the works that you perform, the duties that you do, and the acts that you commit, or maybe it's the way you dress, or maybe it's the way you talk, or maybe it's, it's your specific way of, of worship, or, or your external actions. Maybe you have been putting trust and hope in those things, and it's really a counterfeit temple you're hoping in instead of hoping in Jesus as the true temple. So we have to ask ourselves, do we draw near to God through Christ, or do we try to come near to God through our performance? Do we, do we come near to God to find mercy and grace through Jesus, or are we looking somebody, somewhere else? You know, in, in the Jewish times prior to Jesus, the temple was really the center of the Jewish life. And in, in the very beginning, the tabernacle was put right in the middle of the camp to begin with so that the whole camp could be centered on the tabernacle. It was meant to be a picture of the fact that the temple was to be the center of their lives, And now Jesus, when he says, I am the temple, something greater than the temple is here. He's pointing to the fact that he is meant to be the center of our lives. And so if you're thinking through this, you can apply that to your own life and ask yourself, is Jesus functioning as the temple for me? Is he at the center of my life? Is he where God intended for him to be in my work, in my job, in my school when in my neighborhood and in relating to people, is, is he at the center of my life, in my home, in my leisure? Do I meet with God through Jesus? Do I know him? Am I trusting in him or am I giving in to self-sufficiency and self-righteousness? You know, like the Pharisees, they were trusting in counterfeit gods, really, when they were trusting in their own righteousness. And that led them to really not recognize Jesus for who he was. What are we trusting in? Who are we trusting in? If we understand that Jesus is greater than the temple, that he, under, he fulfills the function of the temple, he replaces it, then we'll begin to understand really the second way that Jesus is seeking to address our hearts in this passage in verses 7 and 8. Look down your Bibles. You see that Jesus not only is the place where we experience the Sabbath, He tells us that he himself is our rest. Jesus is our true rest. That's the second thing that we see here that addresses our hearts. Jesus says, I am the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
That should have blown their minds. You know, sometimes we go on vacation with family and, and it's a great privilege. And sometimes they're, they're really great times. This past 4th of July, we got to be with family. It was, it was relaxing and enjoyable, two things that don't always go together. And with family, if you're being honest, sometimes family vacations, you need a break from them, right? Sometimes you, you think, oh, I just need to get away and have rest. And you pack your vacation with such, uh, so many things and your schedule's so full that you actually come back worn out. You ever have a vacation like that where you're like, I need to go back to work so I can get a break from vacation. I need to find rest somehow. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, vacations can be a good time of rest if we're careful to make sure we actually get some. You know, have you ever, ever been wanting to rest after feeling like, oh gosh, I've been, I haven't had off in ages. I want to take some time off and and it ends up not actually satisfying you, and you feel like something's missing. I took all this time off, and I, I didn't do anything, but I still don't feel rested in my soul. Why is that? It's because we're not meant to ultimately find rest, even in good things, even in, this, even in taking a day off, which is good, and we need to restore us physically, and we're meant to orient ourselves to God. But where rest, that one day a week, whatever we take, or that, that our, our Sabbath or our, our times of vacation and, and recreation and restoration, those are all meant to point us to our rest in Christ. That's how ultimately when we're most refreshed is when we can revel in Jesus and rest in him. You know, sometimes we're so busy that our souls don't rest. We're so distracted by entertainment and and all kinds of things that we find no rest and we wonder why we're weary. Because we're not seeing Jesus. Right now especially, oh man, politics. And by the way, we're not gonna talk about a political candidate. We won't do that here. But I don't know about you, I, I get weary of looking at politics, no matter who it is or what party, for hope or rest because it's exhausting, it's draining, and I think that's good because, now it's not good that our politics are in such shambles, it's good that, that we're feeling unrest right now. If you're a believer and you're feeling unrest about the current political situation, that can be good because it's meant to point us to our true rest and our true hope in Christ, that we're not meant to have rest and hope in politics or who your party or leader or whoever it is. We're gearing up for November. It's, it's, let me see here. It's, it's, it's less than a month away. Don't be fooled into looking for whoever it is or whatever party it is to find rest as if somehow um, we're living in the promised land. We're not. Jesus is the promised one. He is the true temple. He is our Sabbath rest. He's the one that brings us into the ultimate promised land, our promised place of rest. Rest from all of our enemies. Rest from the enemies of sin and death and hell. He is our rest. Kind of wish our church was a little more ethnic right now. People, people should be shouting amen or something. I mean, come on. Sometimes we're easily tempted to look to counterfeit ways subtly and find or look for rest and, and fail to find true rest. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by counterfeits. We're meant to see that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who, 
who brings our rest. He is the one who's over our rest. He is the one who institutes our rest, who brings our rest. And the disciples, they're just eating, they're serving him, following him, and and the Pharisees aren't being merciful. They aren't understanding even a basic need like hunger. And verse seven, he tells the Pharisees, if you really understood what it means to say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have shown mercy to the disciples. And he's He's quoting a well-known verse in Hosea 6.6, 6, and he says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. God wants us to demonstrate mercy and acknowledgement of him and acknowledgement of the fact that actually we find him to be our rest, that we're trusting in him. And he tells the Pharisees, if you understood these things, you, you, would, have, you would have actually shown mercy. They're really innocent here. And then he ends his correction of the Pharisees by making that astounding declaration I mentioned earlier. Look down at verse 8. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do, do you believe that? Do, do you get that? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees, as soon as he said that, they should have recognized that Son of Man language, by the way. That Son of Man language is, is very specific and it, and it refers really back to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel had a vision. I think we have it here on your overheads for you. And, and Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And by the way, this is right after the beasts had been conquered. And he says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that should not be destroyed. His kingdom doesn't pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. What's, what's Jesus talking about when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath and he's referring back to the Son of Man? I think we're meant to see that where the, where, where the first man, Adam, had failed, he'd been commanded to do what? To take dominion. That's this verse in, in Daniel. It talks about the Son of Man taking dominion and being given dominion. Adam had failed to actually do the, the, the first command, really, that God had given him to take dominion over the, the natural created order of the world, over the beasts. And because he failed, all died in him and he died. His rule ended when he was kicked out of the garden. His kingdom passed away and the garden was actually destroyed because he was no longer able to keep it. So the rest that man was meant to enter into in God was in some way actually taken away because that man failed. But now Jesus is saying, the son of man, me, I'm the son of man. I have come and I'm taking glory and dominion and I'm reigning and I am Lord of the Sabbath. Do you get that? so that all peoples and nations and languages would find rest in him. This is a recreative language that he's using here. Where Adam failed as the head of humanity, Jesus now is the representative head of a new order of humanity. He's the one who ushers us 
into the new creation in him, and in him we find new and final rest. Boy, this, this verse apply to us, don't they? Say it differently, not only is Lord of the Sabbath, he is Lord over our rest. He is Lord over the rest of God, the rest that we're meant to enter into. And here's the thing, we won't ever find any rest in any earthly system or person or leader or place or perfect vacation or perfect family or perfect home or perfect job or plenty of money. He is the one whom is over all of our rest and in whom our rest is found and established. The Son of Man is Lord. He is taking dominion over the Sabbath, the rest. He's the one in whom we find ultimate rest, who replenishes us when we're weary. Are you weary? It may be you need rest in him. He's the one in whom we are rejuvenated. And Hebrews 4 tells us that we enter into the Sabbath rest through Jesus or Yeshua, the true Joshua. Because the the Joshua who first led the people after Moses, he didn't bring them into ultimately the place of rest they needed. And yet now Jesus brings us into a place of rest and, and we can rest in him and we can find rest in God's presence and receive mercy and grace. We can be restored in him. And so on this side of the cross now we understand that when Jesus died and he declared it is finished like we sang about this morning, He was declaring that all of his work on our behalf was done. He he has taken dominion now. He's the son of man. He's the Lord. And he's the Lord of our rest. What does that mean? It means all of his work to redeem us from ourselves and from slavery to sin was done. All of his work to take God's wrath wrath has been fully completed on the cross. He is Lord of the Sabbath. As he died and he cried out and and breathed his last and he said it's finished. He was declaring that all the work that we should have done, that Adam should have done in taking dominion and establishing God's rule and reign, that Jesus has now done that and it's done in him. And so now he is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Hebrews tells us to strive to enter into resting in his work. Not that we stop doing things, but we rest in Jesus' finished work. Why? Because he is Lord of the new and final Sabbath, our, our rest in God. Ultimately, we find our final rest in him, and we eagerly are now waiting the consummation of all things, aren't we? And we're to trust in him in the meanwhile. But in our union with him, we've entered into this new life with him already. And then the last part that we see in this passage, the last truth that we see in this passage that speaks to our hearts, it's really seen in this miracle of healing. And we see in this miracle that Jesus, he restores. That he restores. Jesus is our restoration. He restores and heals guy named Vern Poitras, he wrote a little book called The Miracles of Jesus. We actually have it on the resource table for you. I think it'd be encouraging to pick that up or some of the other books we have on the miracles and parables of Jesus. But he says it's eminently suitable that Jesus should accomplish his works of healing, especially on the Sabbath. 
especially on the Sabbath should Jesus accomplish his works of healing because he ultimately brings us true healing. He demonstrated through the miracle of healing and restoration that he had authority to claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he was doing. It was putting a stamp on his statements that I'm the temple, I'm the Sabbath, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. His healing was a stamp on that saying, I'm the temple, I'm the place where you encounter God, I'm the place where you receive rest, and by the way, I'm the place, I am the person that you are restored in and healed. And that's what he shows us in these verses. Siri keeps talking to me too, isn't that crazy? I guess all of us should put our phones on silent, huh? Um, Jesus goes from this interaction with the Pharisees right into the synagogue. And I can imagine he was planning on that. He goes right in the synagogue, and as he does, look down your Bibles, it kind of says, there's a man there with a withered hand. And then it shows this, this picture of the Pharisees, and they're kind of, they're either, either presenting this man with a withered hand to Jesus, or they're noticing him, and they're just kind of sitting back and watching Jesus and and saying, okay, here's this man with the withered hand. Let's, gonna, let's see what he does. Let's see how he interacts with this man. They weren't looking out for this man's good. They weren't hoping the man might get healed. They were wanting to selfishly use this man for their own ends. To trap Jesus. To accuse him of the crime of violating their laws. They obviously missed the fact that he was saying that he's the temple. That he's the Sabbath. Instead, they were focusing on, on a counterfeit God, their own righteousness. So Jesus turns things back around on them in verse 11, if you look down your Bibles, and, and he kind of interrogates them. And he's basically saying, he says, which one of you is an immersible shepherd? Hey, raise your hand. Are you an immersible shepherd? Do you have a sheep? And if your sheep falls into a pit, tell me, which one of you? Raise your hand right now. Which one of you will let your sheep suffer if, he lays, if he's in a pit and he falls there? He's about to die or he's vulnerable to wolves. You can't move. Which one of you would do that? Well, you know, none of them raised their hands. None of them, none of them wanted to own up to that. And he's saying, if you, if, you wouldn't, if you would pull your sheep out of a pit, then how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, of course, it's lawful. Why won't you try to help a man who's of more value than a sheep? It, of course, it's lawful to help a sheep. Of course, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he demonstrates that. He demonstrates his authority. I like Luke's account. In Luke 6, 8 through 10, I think we have that version on the overheads for you. Jesus, he talked to the man with the withered hand, and he told him to get up. He says, he says get up and stand in front of everyone. I love what he's doing. He's, he's, he's drawing yet another object lesson to his authority and who he is. And he says, get up, stand up in front of everybody. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And he says, he looks all around at all of them. Mark tells us that they didn't answer the word and he got kind of angry, a righteous anger. And then he says, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Get out in front of everybody. Is it lawful to do good or evil? Well, hey, you, stretch your hand out. It says he did so, and his hand was completely restored. And that word restoration is used not only in Matthew, but in Luke and in Mark. And I think we're meant to see that he is the one who restores. He's the temple. He's our Sabbath rest. He is our restoration. 
Look down at verse 13. It, it doesn't say that Jesus touched the man with only a word. He just commands the man to stretch out his hand. Stretch, stretch out your hand. And the man does. And as soon as he does it, this, this shriveled, gnarly hand that was so ugly that it was noticeable to all there, he stretches it out and instantly it was restored. Instantly life came back into it. Instantly his hand was recreated and he was showing us that, that he is the one. Jesus is the one who recreates. Jesus is the one who restores. Jesus is the one who brings life and health. This recreation of the man's hand, restoring his hand to health. He's showing what kind of Lord of the Sabbath he is. He's the kind of Lord who restores, who recreates, who recreates us in him. And as we trust in him, he brings healing and rest, both now in part as the first fruits of our, of our ultimate rest, and then when we go to be with him in our final rest. He will give us our ultimate rest. He is our source of recreation. He is our source of restoration. Sadly, verse 14 told us that, if you look in your Bibles, it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They missed it. They missed the fact that Jesus was the new temple where we meet God. They missed the fact that Jesus is the one in whom we find rest. They miss the fact that Jesus restores how sad they trusted in counterfeit gods. They trusted in their own religion. The very people who were meant to study God's law and encounter God trusted in their own means to get to God. And they hated him. They hated him because if they trusted in him, they had to give up trusting in their own works. They hated Jesus because he violated their rules, their order, their understanding of things, and they were unwilling to submit to him. How about you and I? When Jesus violates our rules and our order and our understanding of things, will we submit to him? Will we rest in him? Will we give up trusting in our own works? You know, sometimes it can feel pretty risky trusting in Jesus, right? If you're honest, you know, becoming a Christian doesn't make life easier. If it has, then I wonder if you really are truly a believer. Now, it makes life joyful. It gives us hope. And so in that sense, sure, we can weather the storms of life. And so through that, I guess life is easier. But the reality is it doesn't make our experience of life easier. It doesn't make people like us more. It doesn't make us be more acceptable to other people. It doesn't mean the world is going to love us and that everybody's going to be kind to us. It actually should mean the reverse. Just like the world rejected Jesus, Jesus said, if you are in me, then, then you're going to be rejected. You're going to be hated. And it's risky trusting in him. It's risky trusting in his work alone because it means that, wait a minute, I have to admit, I have to humble myself and admit that I have nothing good in myself, that, that I trust fully and completely in his merit, and I have to give up pride, and I can't trust in my own worth and my own acceptance before him based on what I can say or do. And I have to say, Jesus, you are my only hope, my only plea, my great high priest. I'm altogether unable to be worthy on my own. God, I can't be good enough. I'm completely dependent on your work alone. That's risky. But it's rewarding because he restores us. He gives us true rest. He recreates us. Church, are you, are you trusting in a counterfeit religion or are you trusting in, in Jesus, the temple, the Sabbath rest, 
the one who restores. You know, anything other than God is a, is a cheap ripoff and it won't satisfy. If you're trusting in a subtle counterfeit, it can be, it can be life-threatening. They, they hated Jesus because he challenged their authority. He claimed ultimate authority over them. How about you? Will you give up your authority? Will you allow him to have ultimate authority over you? Will you come to him as the temple? Will you worship him? Will you find rest in him? Will you look to him to be restored? I was thinking this morning, you know, I'm, I'm like that man all over. I'm that withered man. So often I'm withered. But so often I tried to to not feel withered by seeking all kinds of things to be satisfied in, by looking to all kinds of places for hope. And Jesus wants us to come and to stand up. He doesn't ask us to do anything. He doesn't ask us to heal ourselves. He doesn't say, hey, now say these special incantation, do these special things, jump up and down three times, tap your head. He, he doesn't, he just asks us to trust in him, to stand up and then to obey him. And as we trust in him, obediently responding to him, and what, is he, what does this man do? He, just, he helplessly stretches out his, his withered hand, and that's what God calls us to do. It's a picture of God calling us to stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand, and, and he will restore. What a wonderful, merciful picture of what Jesus does for us. He calls us. He rescues us from the enemy who would only use us. He seeks to restore us and heal us. He delivers us from suffering and he calls us to enter his rest. So what should our ultimate response be then? I think we should turn away from trusting in our own works. We should turn away to look to any false temple, false place of worship. We should turn away from looking to false systems or, of rest or people or Stop looking to your family or your work or your school or your grades or your money or other things for satisfaction or affirmation or trying to atone for your own sins or trying to earn God's favor. Stop trying to be restored anywhere else. And instead, let's look to the God of creation, the Son of Man, who now has dominion. And he's inaugurated a new creation in himself. And by faith now, we eagerly not only stretch out our hands, but we, we eagerly wait his return when he'll make all things new. And that's what he, that's what he says in, in Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. That's what this passage points us forward to. So let's find our hope in him, amen? Let's pray, and as we pray, I'll have the band go ahead and come up.